Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I hope everybody had a wonderful Fourth uh, of July Independence Day weekend, including, to paraphrase the president, uh, the former president, I should say, the losers and the haters. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little cranky. I just saw this stupid stupid tweet by Touré um about how the how the british were about to abolish slavery in america and that's why we had the we had the revolutionary war which is just 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 what historians call made up bs and um, i was reading it seconds before i came on here but we don't need to talk about that because today is a very exciting day um we have finally back for to collect his gold jacket and to fulfill one of the um, one of one of the traditions that has the longest history of existence in this podcast, um, which is Ilya Shapiro's Supreme Court review and potpourri, <laughs> and so we have Ilya Shapiro, a I believe you are a vice president at the Cato Institute. That's As right, we- but in in uh, in uh, the the sprawling nonprofit bureaucracy that Cato is, that means I'm I think eight heartbeats away, something like that, tied for eight heartbeats away. Yeah, right. But you like your official ta- title is vice president and in charge of legal type stuff, right? That's basically that. That is, I believe, the official title. Yes. Um. All right. So that's that's you know, and I I feel director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies is how I knew you. I knew I, could, I was just going to goad you into giving the actual yeah. thing. Um. Uh, I feel a little guilty because, you know, we at the dispatch, we have advisory opinions, which uh, whose cup runneth over in Supreme Court commentary. Um, but and but I nevertheless, to, you have to come to me for your annual review. I get it. I hope they. Yeah, get it. it's 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 tough. And, and 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 there are listener. We have overlapping listeners and some of them. I don't know where you might disagree with them. And, and frankly, I want to be very clear about this. I do not care. Um, but, uh, you know, for the listeners who have gotten their fill on this stuff, uh, maybe stick around for the potpourri section of, uh, of, of our conversation. So let's start big picture. You are a, uh, sort of, you you know, Jonah, you're welcome to invite me, uh, not just for Supreme court review. I do have interests and opinions that range far and wide. Big if true. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, but um, I, we've had you on at, at, for times other than the Supreme Court review, but this is the traditional time when we take you out from the from the cabinet at the, at the altar and we parade you around the congregation. So, uh, you know, it needs to be done. So um, big picture from a uh, guy with his head and his heart wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice, which is what you are. Uh, what did you think about the Supreme Court 
court overall? Like, what were your big takeaways? It was an unusual term. The court is in flux. Some are ready to call it a 3-3-3 court with three on the right, three on the left, and three kind of moderates or center right or what have you. I'm not quite ready to go there yet just because there's so much, there's been so much rapid personnel change in the last few years. The court's still kind of settling in. Um, there seems to be more disagreement on what legal scholars call the shadow docket, and we can get into that rather than the actual cases that were heard and a lot more surprising uh, unanimity and and what have you. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we haven't seen this kind of hyper-conservative tilt, the 6-3 court that some fear or others uh, hoped for. Um, and it could just be setting the stage for a blockbuster term next year with the abortion case and maybe Harvard Affirmative Action, the gun case, school choice, things like that. Uh, but this, this has been um, an interesting term with many, uh, you know, moderately interesting cases, some with longer uh, reach than others. Uh, but I'm, I'm generally happy where things are going. Cato reached a 10 and three record. We handily beat the government, uh, which we consider to be our biggest rival. Um, and, and overall, you know, Breyer didn't retire and I guess, I suppose he still could, but, uh, presumably he's not at, at, at this point. And so my book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court, while being somewhat of an evergreen, will have to wait another year for the big boost that it always gets when there's a vacancy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, of the new, of the relative newbies, right? So basically the Trump appointees, uh, biggest surprises, biggest, um, you know, what, you know, is this textualist versus originalist thing? Is this going to be the new bloods and crips and legal world? Where, 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 do, you, where do you come down on all this? <laughs> well, the, the real question is, are you more with Roberts or are you more with Thomas, right? The two poles, the, the, the ultra pragmatist minimalist who wants to moderate for the sake of moderation. That's the chief justice. And, uh, and the man who just calls him as he sees him and is the, the originalist, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas. Um, and uh, so far, uh, Gorsuch is closer to Thomas, Barrett and Kavanaugh are closer to Roberts. Um, but that's only in the sense of how far and how fast they want to go, not in terms of kind of tacking left or, or evolving in office in, in that sense. And um, uh, they agree with each other a fair lot. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Kavanaugh and Roberts agree with each other more than anyone else. And the liberals agree with each other after that. But then it's the, it's the Trump appointees, um, agreeing with, uh, each other. So a lot of different kind of intellectual fervent, uh, on the right, on all the Republican appointees that are, you know, not just originalism, textualism, but all these different things that we can get into if you want. They're all, they're, they're each very, very different, very interesting. But what we've seen so far is, Barrett replacing Ginsburg didn't change all that much. There weren't that many five to four decisions that would have swung the other way. Um, uh, but you do see Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas expressing frustration that both Kavanaugh and Barrett aren't willing to go as far uh, in various types of cases. So I've seen people say, or I've heard people say, or I've seen people write just to have verb action agreement, um, that. Barrett is still getting her sea legs and maturing, and they think that when she gets more comfortable and the the sort of sensitivities that came from the confirmation process uh, fade in the rearview mirror, they think that she still may end up moving much more, I guess, in the Thomas direction. Do you think that's right? 
There's something to that. Uh, certainly the first year that a justice is on the court, he or she uh, tends to be more cautious, uh, keeps his or her head down, uh, that sort of thing. That obviously happened with Kavanaugh, who had the, you know, the biggest cataclysm that we've seen in terms of a confirmed uh, justice. Barrett, it wasn't really about her. It was just about the timing and, and things like that. And she only wrote four majority opinions this term, which is low. Everyone else wrote six or seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe she lost a majority or whatever. But anyway, yes, very low key. Uh, did provide the deciding vote on a couple of COVID-related uh, rulings against the California governor and, and against the uh, New York governor, New York City mayor, restrictions on churches and synagogues. Although the differentiation where she uh, and Kavanaugh were okay with restricting singing, where some of the others were not, even if they did rule that you had to keep the church uh, open if you're going to open uh, other places. But yeah, she she is... Not yet, uh, you know, she's she's maybe shocked doomsayers uh, with her joining the majority and in, in not overturning Obamacare and depriving millions of health care as the demagoguery went at her hearings, uh, but still has not sealed the deal with the with the true believers that thinks that a think that a mother of seven who's, you know, very religious is all of a sudden going to, um, you know, impose uh, Catholic Sharia law or something like that. I have a dumb question, but there, there are you- no dumb questions, only dumb questioners. Um, fair. <laughs> so because I'm feeling particularly dumb and I feel IQ points evaporating in the summer heat, um, given my weekend, um, when you said she was the deciding vote on that, is that, is there some heuristic, some formula, some algorithm that says how someone is a deciding vote or does everybody in a five, four case get to be called a deciding vote sort of like in the Senate? Yeah. I mean, everyone on a 5-4 is in theory deciding, but um, that is actually one of the very few cases or issues where uh, replacing Ginsburg with Barrett made a difference because there were similar cases where Ginsburg was still on the court and it went 5-4 to four the other way. This is because, of course, Roberts was joining the, the liberals. Otherwise, it would be a 6-3 and it wouldn't matter as much. But uh, that is one issue of you know w- whether you have to open uh, religious uh, establishments on a kind of a most favored nation status uh, uh, compared to uh, similar secular uh, institutions that you're opening during during the pandemic, uh, and so that's one where she's she. I think it's fair to call her uh, the deciding vote. Um, although, uh, you know, just just to make this clear, uh, there were I think twelve six to three opinions this term in six different configurations of justices and mm-hmm. six uh, five to four decisions, or eight if you count the. Uh, the emergency pandemic ones on the, again, the shadow docket, as, as I called it, and in five different configurations. So again, a lot of um, weird, never before seen uh, alignments and, and things like this. So it's unlike in previous years where you just look at where Kennedy was and how often he was with the left or the right or Roberts for a couple of years, uh, very fluid situation. And of course, you know, we, you know, in terms of the three, three, three court if Gorsuch is one of the hardcore ones, best buds with Thomas. Well, the biggest betrayal for conservatives, most would say, is Gorsuch's authorship of the Bostock case last year, the uh, uh, granting protection in federal anti-discrimination law for sexual orientation, gender identity. So not so straightforward um, uh, analysis that, that you can talk uh, in that way. And so your, your, your dumb question, as it were, isn't so dumb. It actually opens a Pandora's box of how uh, Supreme Court analysts and commentators and, and, and reporters actually have to do more work in explaining what's going on. Yeah, well, and some people do consider me an idiot savant of constitutional analysis, more emphasis on the idiot than the savant, but, you know, it, they, they, they go together. All right. I mean, you mentioned Bostock, Bostock, 
postdoc postdoc um, um that was the case last year that really highlighted the difference between textualists and originalists at least that's my recollection of it in terms of gorsuch and 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 the other conservatives um can you since i have a a weak spot for jesuitical obscure esoteric uh internecine right-wing disagreements um can you explain the the difference between the sort of the the, the different schools of textualism versus originalism like why you know in good faith, you know, but why, why does one group say X and the other group say, you know, not X, but Y? Um, and was there a case this term that really highlighted it the way Bostock did, you know, last year? Well, Bostock was actually a disagreement between two variations of uh, textualism, and, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, people have tried to uh, explain to me the difference between textualism and originalism. And I, you know, I, I really, I think originalism is simply textualism for the Constitution. There's more history involved because you tend to be evaluating the meaning of a text that was ratified in 1789 or 1868 for purpose of the 14th Amendment, rather than you know, the Clean Water Act in the 70s when there's a lot more evidence for, for what, what it meant and, and, and things like that. Um, so that's a big difference when, you, when you're doing these things. But I don't think there's that much of a difference between textualism and originals. And again, academics will come in and I'm sure they're going to bombard your Twitter feed with uh, how I'm miss, missing the wonderful subtleties uh, therein. But um, you know, most cases, uh, the difference is because of different prudential approaches, like the the precedent should be upheld or it shouldn't, or um, things like that, rather than the actual interpretation of the text or the original meaning of the of the constitutional provision. And in Bostock, the gr- disagreement wasn't between originalists and textualists. It was about do you is does does the question uh, of whether uh, a provision, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which protects uh, against employment discrimination based on sex, whether the focus should be on the word sex or the phrase discrimination on the basis of sex. Because uh, Gorsuch said, uh, quite rightly, that sex is inextricably connected to sexual orientation and gender identity. The problem is, and this is why I agree with Kavanaugh and the dissenters, uh, is that um, that doesn't answer the question because the textual analysis is of whether uh, the law prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of sex. And even in 2021, let alone 1965, um, you wouldn't say that someone fired for being gay was discriminated against on the basis of sex. And so it just, uh, you know, Gorsuch was doing hyper-literalism perhaps rather than, than true textualism. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll, since that was last year, we won't go too deep in it. You should also, because it was the rhetorical equivalent of the Russian in the Pine Barrens, explain uh, uh, to our listeners what the shadow docket is and why you should fear it. Yeah, there's always been congressional hearings uh, on it. This is uh, another windmill at which uh, Sheldon Whitehouse is tilting. Um, it's not the same as dark money. However, it's their decisions are in plain view. They, they issue their decisions, although not always. Uh, so there's, there are asterisks all over the place here. Um, the shadow docket is everything that is not argued cases that then have full blown opinions and dissents and concurrences written about them. So it can be everything from decisions, whether to grant or deny cert, whether to take up a case. You need four votes, four of the nine, to take up a case, and you don't know how the votes break down. Sometimes when they deny, you have a dissent from denial by one, two, or three of them. Uh, You can't have four because then they would just grant if there were four votes. 
Um, uh, also emergency appeals and emergency motions for stay of a lower court action. That can happen with the death penalty. Someone's about to be executed and they have a last minute appeal because whatever claim their counsel wants to throw at the wall. Uh, during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of these um, with, we mentioned church openings, but it happened in, in other contexts uh, uh, as well. And then there's kind of um, cases that are brought, petitions that are filed, and the court decides that the Ninth Circuit, typically, this happened a lot to the Ninth Circuit this year, uh, was so wrong that they're just going to reverse them and send it back without having to hold uh, full argument on the merits uh, at the Supreme Court. And this this year, there were 10 of these cases on the shadow docket with rather substantial uh, opinions, which is unusual. Again, part of that is pandemic, part of it is the Ninth Circuit going crazy. But um, the, the worry is among academics and practitioners is that these cases are not fully briefed and developed. Sometimes they're just appealed directly from the district court without even briefing an argument in the circuit court and the appellate level. And so the Supreme Court's not supposed to be reaching out, just randomly deciding things, issuing stays, issuing injunctions uh, all over the country. That's supposed to, or so that lawyers talk about the law percolating up from the lower courts, from the nether regions. And finally, when everything is, is finally percolated and the issues are well presented and joined, at that point, the oracle says, okay, we will pronounce on this, uh, on this issue. So anyway... Um, a lot of action, a lot of disagreement in the shadow docket um, this term and a growing uh, concern from uh, academics, from practitioners that, uh, that the court's kind of short circuiting the judicial process, whether you like or dislike what it does in these in these abbreviated decisions. Interesting. So the was one of the cases the refusal to hear the Trump challenge to the election? Was that this term? Yes, the, the, the decisions not in, in various forms. So there were a lot of emergency appeals and cases brought uh, after the election. Um, some of these were just uh, kind of run of the mill. Uh, it went through the lower courts and then the Supreme Court said, yeah, there's nothing for us to see here. You know, cert denied, uh, not taking up the case. There were uh, there was one, I think, DeGraffenried is the, the, the formal name of the case, which came up before the election. Uh, on an emergency uh, procedure and afterwards kind of a regular procedure to evaluate it. This is the the, the one serious uh, case that was brought out of all the brouhaha. This isn't the Kraken. This isn't the Texas dispute to try to sue you know other states. This is uh, when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court unilaterally rewrote Pennsylvania election right. law. Um, the question was, uh, you know, does that violate various constitutional provisions? Uh, it ended up being not outcome determinative in the sense that the number of ballots in dispute because they were received late or weren't signed in a way that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court changed the election law to allow, that wouldn't have changed the ultimate outcome of the election. But as Thomas and others pointed out, it would have been nice for the Supreme Court to settle that issue because it's going to come up again and again with state judiciaries interfering with state legislatures when the federal constitution says that state legislatures are supposed to be supreme on questions of state election law. So yes, that is kind of the highest profile or most important and one of several disappointing places where the court did not take up a case um, for reasons that, that we just don't know. I mean, why do you think it's disappointing? Because it would be nice for, this, for, to, for there to be jurisprudence on what the standard is for when uh, state Supreme Courts can have their range of, of, of motion in 
uh, rewriting state election law. That that comes up actually not infrequently, and particularly in our polarized times where every aspect of election law is disputed and debated. It would be good to have uh, jurisprudence on that sooner rather than later, not in the heat of an election. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the case that it failed basically with a latches problem. Do I have that phrase right? It was like the re- the GOP. If it had a problem, yes, and that's where Sarah did, Isger and I got something? in a debate over the de- over the pronunciation of, of latches. I don't know whether it's latches or, or latches or there's a oh. schwa there or something. I, I'm not sure. Interesting. I did not know that you got into this debate. Uh, this is I, I, this is a failure of my show prep because um, anytime I or I can heighten the contradictions with Sarah, I like to do that for just just for box office purposes. Yeah, love the love lovely lady, but still, it's fun to make her mad. Um. Okay, so uh, should we talk you, about some of the actual cases? This yeah, time? And I was just about to say, what do you think is the most like what you know? If you had to do your top three of what are the most significant cases of the year, what would you say are the most significant cases of the year? So going into the term, I would have thought that Fulton versus Philadelphia would have been the biggest case, which is the one where uh, the city of brotherly love expressed no love for Catholic social services um, in terms of participation in, in foster and adoption programs, which it had been doing for over a century uh, because they would not place with same-sex couples. Uh, now, how did this case come about? Did they deny service to a same-sex couple and they sued? No. In fact, they frequently referred to one of the many dozens of other agencies that do foster and adoption care. So nobody was deprived. And most importantly, no kids were you know, uh, not placed because of, of this decision. Philadelphia just found out, the, the powers that be in Philly uh, found out that Catholic Social Services didn't do those kinds of placements and so disqualified them. And this was supposed to be a cataclysmic battle, you, you, the, the latest one between freedom of association, freedom of religion, and uh, LGBT rights. And uh, ultimately, the court uh, unanimously decided, it was kind of like Masterpiece Cake Shop with the, the baker in Colorado a few years ago, decided that Philadelphia expressed animus, and this was not a generally applicable law. In fact, one city official w- was given discretion to make exemptions uh, from this anti-discrimination policy, and therefore the court held uh, the the diocese, the Catholic Social Services, was uh, not treated equally, and so they didn't have to reach the issue of um, you know that cla- cataclysmic clash, or uh, to to introduce some precedent in it, uh, the continued validity of a case called Employment Division versus Smith, which 30 years ago, in an opinion by that uh, radical transhumanist secularist Antonin Scalia decided that if there was a generally applicable law which incidentally burdened religion, you had to seek your exemption from the legislature, not from uh, judges. So a lot, of, a lot of dispute over whether to change or overturn Smith. And this is one of those cases where uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas uh, threw some shade on Barrett and Kavanaugh for not being willing to do that, not being willing where, to go Where do you far. come down on Smith? I actually think Smith was correctly decided. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was only a, a brief period in our entire history from a case called Sherbert versus, uh, Verner in 1964 until Smith in, uh, 1991 that the other rule, uh, lay, that is the judges would read in exemptions for, uh, religious, uh, actors who were, uh, burdened by generally applicable laws, uh, historically from the founding, if you wanted an exemption, again, not as long as there's no allegation that uh, you know a religion is being uh, directly targeted for, by some official acting with animus or a state or, or what have you. But it's a, you know generally ap- applicable law just happens to burden 
uh, religious actors get your exemption from the government. And that's why there are exemptions uh, in state and federal law in all sorts of ways. Uh, RIFRA being the most uh, meaningful one, and that that replied to Smith to say that indeed uh, uh, government, if it wants to burden religion, has to find the uh, uh, you know the least burdensome way or narrowly tailor uh, their their law to achieve the same result, uh, go out of its way not to burden religion. So I'm one of the guests, uh, very few people who is in favor both of the Smith decision and of the RIFRA response. Um, I think it's appropriate for you know to read the Constitution as Smith as, as Scalia did, uh, and for Congress to have a legislative response to that. Okay, so but on the, on the Philadelphia case, uh, some of my friends on the right have been saying, "Well, well, it's 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 nice. It's very nice. Vanilla ice cream is nice to have a nine zero case." They would have liked to see sort of like your point about the the you know Thomas saying we need some clarity on on this elections law with judges it would have been nice if they had swung maybe not for the fences but a little further than um finding so narrowly because it wouldn't take much for philadelphia to fix this in a way quote unquote fix this in a way that would hurt the catholic church um you know are you one of these incrementalists who just thinks if you can get nine zero and kick the can it's worth doing no, no. But in this case, I, I don't fully buy that criticism, which was espoused by Justice Alito in his concurrence, saying that, yeah, Philly will just take away the discretion from that official, make no exemptions, and and uh, away we go again. I'm not sure that will fly um, uh, for complicated reasons that involve um, kind of the what what David French has called the classical liberal sent, uh, uh, settlement that the court is, seems to be approaching on on these sorts of, of questions. Um, I don't think we need to get into it here, but I, I I don't think Philadelphia the way that the opinion is written. I don't think Philadelphia can get away with just uh, you know tweaking its law um, in in part because that no one's shown that there's any harm, and the the court majority joined uh, also by the liberals said that, you know, mere taking offense is is not enough. And when you have, you know, dozens of adoption agencies that happily provide services to any manner of, of couples or would-be adoptive parents, uh, you know, where's the harm just because the mayor hears about the uh, Catholic Social Services, which has been doing an exemplary job for over a century, uh, where's the harm for for it kind of continuing to do what it's always been doing? So in that case, I'm, I'm not so concerned about the, the split the baby sort of uh, grand uh, compromise. Okay, so if this was the Walter case going Olson, in, my, coll my, my colleague Walter Olson at Cato has written about this, and I think maybe even for the Dispatch, I can't remember. He's very I prolific, think he did. but yeah. Um, so if that was the case that you thought was going to be the big deal going in, and it turned out to be um, a nine to zero, nothing burger ish kind of case, what was the case that actually turned out to be the big deal, um, and will we be remembered as a big deal if there was one? Well, let's talk about the three and perhaps the only three high profile uh, decisions that actually did break down six to three conservatives over liberals or Republican appointees over Democratic appointees. Um, one, uh, Cedar Point um, is uh, versus uh, Bonta, used to be Becerra, before that was uh, Harris, because uh, all the California AGs end up swept into the, uh, into the Biden administration. Um, that one uh, is pro probably the, the biggest property rights uh, case in, in decades. Uh, this involved a California labor law that uh, required in the agricultural context 
employers to allow onto their property for three hours a day, 120 days a year, basically a third of the year, union organizers in numbers, kind of there's a, there's a, a ratio based on how many employees there are. Um, and uh, the claim was that this violated uh, the property rights. This was a taking that needed to be compensated. And there was a big debate over, well, isn't it just like a health and safety regulation where you have to allow inspectors on and, and things like this? Um, besides, it wasn't uh, a permanent taking. It wasn't, you know, they could come on whenever, all the time, stuff like that. The court ended up ruling six to three that it, it was indeed a taking. It's not kind of a traditional health and safety trying to prevent uh, nuisances or, or things that you can't do with your property anyway, something that would harm your neighbors. Well, here there weren't, there were no allegations that are harming their neighbors. It's a labor uh, regulation. Um, and uh, that may or may not be justified. It may or may not be a public use, may not be a, may or may not be a good use of, of eminent domain or, or, or the police power that the state has to regulate, but it is a taking and needs to be compensated. Um, and it's a per se taking, which is important because you don't get into the very complicated uh, expensive lawyers paying uh, legalese over regulatory takings. It's a per se taking. Whatever the value of that access is has to be meted out uh, immediately. And so California now has to rewrite its labor law or, or, or you know, do away with it. And that's and, that's a and pretty big deal. I mean, Again, opinion by John Roberts, six to three, uh, biggest property rights case in, in decades. And the taking in this is the dislocations and loss of productivity of having to accommodate union organizers on your property when people are supposed to be working? I mean, what is the captured value? No, the- cleaner than that. That would be an economic liberty style argument, which I certainly agree with. But under the takings clause, under the Fifth Amendment, this is a, uh, a an easement in effect. You have the right of access and uh, taking away uh, one of the key, what lawyers call bundle of sticks from classical political philosophy, you have a bundle of rights that you have, the bundle of sticks, one of which is the right to exclude. Well, here, these agricultural employers cannot exclude uh, these uh, these labor organizers uh, and who have uh, this easement, which the court explained need not be permanent, uh, need not be 24 hours a day, but uh, it's, uh, you know, from now until whenever, it's not just a temporary thing during a pandemic or or, or what have you three hours a day, 120 days a year, that set thing is a, is an easement and you have to pay for easements. Hmm. Okay. What's another one? Sure. And the other, uh, the other two, six to three decisions, uh, which came down on the last day of the, of the term on, on Thursday, Canada day, uh, as it happens to be for those of us who, uh, straddle the 49th parallel. Uh, I was just in Canada two weeks ago. Their COVID regulations are insane. We can, we can talk about that in the potpourri section. If you, if you want, I still have public health uh, Canada health officials uh, calling me in the last few days, even though I've been in the U.S. for more, back in the U.S. for more than a week, just because it's still my so-called quarantine period. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so uh, another case involving Mr. Bonta, the new uh, Attorney General of California, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta. This involves donor disclosures. Uh, now, I'm not quite up on on the corporate structure that the dispatch has, whether you have mm-hmm. donors in addition to subscribers and what have you, but. California purported to require all nonprofit organizations. This is not a campaign finance regulation. This is not political campaign committees. All nonprofit organizations, charities, you know, the Cato Institute, the Americans for Prosperity, NAACP, ACLU, whatever, anyone, all all nonprofits to disclose their donors, their donor information, name, address, employer, etc. And lo and behold, in the past, that information has miraculously leaked. And people have been harassed and and all the rest of it, kind of nasty stuff. 
California says it needs this donor disclosure rule uh, so its charitable regulatory body can prosecute and investigate potential fraud. The thing is, when it's investigated fraud, it has never really used these, these donor disclosures. They have subpoena power. They can investigate them like every other state investigates charitable fraud. Uh, so it's unclear exactly what it's for other than, as the majority put it, uh, uh, administrative ease. And that's not a sufficient interest to overcome the uh, interest that we all have in the freedom of association and the freedom of speech. Just as the, as the NAACP in 1958, uh, the court ruled, did not have to disclose its donors to the Attorney General of Alabama. One can imagine why the Attorney General of Alabama wanted uh, the NAACP's donors uh, in the 50s. Um, now the nonprofits don't have to disclose that uh, to California, and which is why um, uh, there were amicus briefs filed by everyone ranging from the NAACP and the ACLU to uh, uh, well, Americans for Prosperity and, and Cato and conservative organizations and you know, completely apolitical nonprofits like uh, PBS affiliates and people who want to save trees and uh, all sorts of different organizations. It's unfortunate that this was six to three. The, the liberals writing through uh, Justice Sotomayor thought there wasn't uh, a big enough burden. And indeed, a lot of donors want their uh, want to trumpet their donation to various causes. Um, but that should be kind of an as applied thing. So if someone can establish harassment, OK, that's one thing. But don't strike down the entire law which was uh, ultimately what the, uh, what the court did. Big debate now uh, of whether that translates to the campaign finance world, to the political world. Disclosures have always been treated very differently there because the interest in voter information is simply a different interest uh, right. than the one that California asserted here. Um, so I saw that the head of the ACLU or the executive, or some muckety-muck from the ACLU, condemned the decision and it had to be pointed out to him that he, in fact, that his organization, in fact, submitted an amicus brief in favor of the conclusion that the court read. And then I, I didn't follow how he was trying to clean up and explain <laughs> away the inconsistency. Was there, was there, was there anything other than like just a huge screw up involved in that? Or is the, the ACLU's position suitably nuanced that I just haven't caught it? No, the, I mean, I, I think this was a state director or something. The, the ACLU's national position was uh, was clear and, and was clearly on the side of, uh, you know, against the California law. Um, you know, there's some, you know, uh, legal jujitsu about whether courts should apply, quote, exacting scrutiny versus strict scrutiny. But ultimately, it doesn't matter in a case like this. So, yeah, I think that that was a, a, a chapter of the ACLU who didn't uh, didn't read that morning's memo coming off the fax machine. Gotcha. OK. Um, do you think that there will be spillover into the campaign finance aspect of these things? The last time a, uh, uh, disclosure rule in a political context came up, the challengers got one vote. That was justice Thomas in a case called Doe versus Reed. I think 2010, there's been some turnover, uh, since then, uh, on the court. I don't know if there'd be five votes to strike down donor disclosure rules altogether. There could be some sort of sliding scale that if you're a big enough player, you do have to disclose. But if you're small enough, uh, you don't. I could see a Roberts and a Kavanaugh agreeing on some kind of mushy non-standard like that. I don't know where they would draw the line. Um, I remember testifying about 10 years ago in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and, and Dick Durbin uh, asked me about uh, it was, you know, ranting against Citizens United and stuff like this. And 
And at a certain point I said, you know, Senator, you know, I might be naive, but I don't think you can be bought with you know, $2,400 or whatever the, the maximum contribution <laughs> limit was at, at, at that time. But, but similarly, I don't think that there's corruption if a donor who donates that small amount of money relative to the overall scale being raised, uh, if that uh, isn't disclosed. So we'll see. It'll certainly be litigated, but I, I'm, I'm, the, the interest is sufficiently different that it'll look like a different case. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that the more corrupting thing, which we don't have to get into in American politics, is the 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 role of of small donors and mass small donors, where you end up basically riding these waves of populist resentment based on nonsense, and you collect five and ten and fifteen dollars from a million people, and um, that encourages a kind of grotesque demagogic pandering that I find more grotesque than pandering to some guy who gave you 2400 bucks who because he doesn't like some um something in the tax code but that's just me you know yeah grotesque uh, populist pandering is is certainly terrible demagogic uh, pandering uh, i've never heard anyone propose a minimum contribution limit to solve that however i'll have to think about that that's that might be one of those half baked ideas that that you'll need to discuss with uh with your buddy congressman uh, uh gallagher gallagher from, yeah. from wisconsin right i mean i I'm, I'm not necessarily floating the idea that 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 we should ban it i just you know because there are lots of things that are bad for the country that are perfectly constitutional and i must live with that um well uh, as, as as a political candidate right now jonah i'm running for my local falls church city school board i'm i'm well aware of both small donors and those who have to be disclosed although in virginia uh there is no contribution limit a, a few of my uh, wealthier friends, partners at law firms and stuff, but made the mistake to ask me the question of what the max is. And I said, no max. And they were like, shoot. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, in my, in my, I just filed today, actually, my latest uh, disclosure uh, you know, with the Virginia Board of Elections. I had 43 small donors, that's $100 and less, and 19 uh, large ones. So we'll see if that ratio holds. We can discuss that later as well. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second, but maybe this is a good way to segue. Um, there was another case at the Supreme Court that was the F-bombing cheerleader, right? Um, Before we get to that, I want to get to the other 631. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I yeah, thought you were going to segue because okay. there's an actual election case, okay. which is Brnovich oh. versus Democratic National Committee. Right. And this is where the left is all apoplectic that uh, the sky is falling and democracy has ended. Why? Because Arizona is allowed to have the same laws as most of the other states. Two laws were at issue here, anti-ballot harvesting, that is, making sure that uh, the only people that can handle a completed ballot are your family, your caregiver, uh, the mailman, and election officials. So kind of prohibiting harvesting people going around, collecting ballots, throwing out ones they don't like, whatever, that sort of thing. Uh, and that you have to vote, if you're going to vote in person, you have to vote in your actual precinct. Um, very kind of non, nothing that was like an innovation from the latest slate of election reforms or the Georgia law or the Texas law that's being talked about, litigated, very kind of standard things, which is why a lot of uh, voting rights uh, activists were concerned that the uh, DNC brought this case because they thought it was a weak one. And it did turn out to be very easy for the Supreme Court to swat away that challenge. But why it's important isn't just because of these two Arizona laws that, as I said, are, are fairly commonplace, but because this is the first time that the court took up a challenge under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits race-based 
um, uh, disenfranchisement or uh, adverse uh, actions in voting uh, outside of the redistricting context. Why is that? We've had the Voting Rights Act for a long time. Section two is the key component. Well, we had Section five for a long time, and that was that a lot of jurisdictions had to submit their election laws to the Justice Department, which would say yay or nay, called preclearance. But that was swept away in the Shelby County case eight years ago. And so all these challenges that previously would have been brought under a different regime are just not brought, not approved by the Justice Department now have to be litigated in this way. And so the court didn't come up with a bright line view, but it did kind of have to say, like, look, there has to be a smell test. Uh, If you're not alleging intentional discrimination, I mean, that's one thing. Right. If you can prove the smoking gun where legislators are saying, yeah, we, we have to make sure that racial minorities don't vote. That's one thing. But just kind of minuscule statistical disparities where, you know, 99.5% of white people know how to vote in the right precinct, but only 99.2% of racial minorities do. That's not enough. Um, you know, kind of laid out these kind of these kind of smell test type standards for courts to evaluate, which makes it hard to bring challenges, as, as I put it. If you're going to make out a claim for race-based vote denial, you actually have to show race-based vote denial. Uh, and the, the left is, is upset about this. So the, I mean, I know you're doing it as. Which, which is unfortunate because I think, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's sad. Uh, it's a sad commentary about where we are as a country and our political discourse that we can't even agree on the rules of the game that such a low level of distrust that whoever loses, they're not going to, they're, they're going to see, uh, you know, fraud or suppression or improprieties or, or what have you. And I don't know how to fix that. Uh, but these sorts of election, uh, uh, cases should not be close and they, they should not be disputed. Yeah. I mean, I, that's sort of how, I mean, that's how I feel about this. I mean, the, the ballot harvesting stuff, I believe you know this better than I, but I'm pretty sure that the last public official to really get dinged legally and prosecuted because of ballot harvesting was a Republican, I think in North Carolina. And if, and I guarantee you, if I went back and looked, I would find lots of people on MSNBC who were scandalized about the theft of democracy that ballot harvesting represents. And we must put a stop to it. And now all of a sudden, when the Supreme court says ballot harvesting, that a state has a compelling interest in, or at least has a legitimate interest in, in, policing ballot harvesting they're like this is the end of democracy it's very very strange to me and i guess it's not strange to me it's just very very annoying to me um but i assumed you were doing it mostly for rhetorical effect but was that the extent to which there was racial discrimination alleged racial discrimination it was 99.5 versus 99.2 or what what was the it best might have been 99.0 or 0.1 but yes it was on on that order uh, so okay super marginal thing because if you listen to the way it was covered, um, you would not have, I mean, like I listened to the way NPR covered it. It wasn't the way MSNBC covered it. You would not suspect that, that they were those kinds of marginal discrepancies involved. They made it Look, sound it's, like it's it was a- easy to vote in America. It's easier to vote in America than it ever has been. And most people by wide majorities, including members of racial minority groups think that, um, uh, it's more important at this point to prevent fraud than to make it even easier to vote. Voter ID, huge supermajority approval by every demographic group, except, right. I guess, progressive elites. Um, so there's a lot of astroturfing going on in these uh, 
in these voting wars, uh, as it were. And by the way, this case, Brnovich has just made it a lot harder for the Justice Department to win its case against the new Georgia law, uh, which it announced on the anniversary of Shelby County without you know, bad legal strategy to, to file your complaint before you even know what the governing standard is going to be, knowing that the Supreme Court within a few days was going to be issuing this, this key decision. So that's going to be a loser. Um, Hey, can I ask a question about the Georgia law for a second? So I think one of the problems, I mean, there were many problems with how that whole thing played out. And there are many, many actors on both sides of the argument who behave poorly. But it seems to me one of the things that made it such a fecal festival was the way in which originally, early in the process, the Georgia state legislature was considering some really, really bad ideas that did not. And so that was being covered in real time. Look what Georgia wants to do, blah, 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 blah. And then as I gather it, most, if not all of the, at least the really bad ideas fell by the wayside. And the final product was open to criticism, but was not the grotesquerie that people saw in its earlier stages of development. And the media couldn't get off the narrative to take into account what the final product that actually became law was. A, is that right? And B, is there anything in the actual law that passed that makes the hair, the libertarian hairs on the back of your neck stand up and say, mm, you know, it's, it's not the monstrosity they claim, but this still is, is not good. They're classical liberal hairs, just to be clear. Fair Although enough. as I age, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, so there, there, there is some muddied water because, as you said, uh, some legislators said things and um, you know, uh, one of the, one of the, I think the, one of the state house leaders, uh, said, uh, well, you, we know you have to placate your base by having these crazy things. Uh, we know they'll, they'll never make it into the final bill. So do what you need to do uh, to paraphrase. Uh, I had a long feature cover story in the Washington Examiner, uh, uh taking, you know, breaking down the Georgia law in various ways and comparing it to the much more restrictive Delaware and New York laws and, and things <laughs> like that. And all of a sudden, you know, Major League Baseball moved its all-star game from all, from from Atlanta, but the commissioner Rob Manfred isn't moving isn't moving out of his office in Manhattan for for some reason. Um, yeah, the, the final product uh, I think is bulletproof. I, I don't I didn't see anything. You know, they didn't get rid of souls to the polls voting on Sundays. They didn't. Um, you know, they 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 kind of figured out they wanted to standardize what their voting was going to be going forward, not a kind of a free for all that that happened during during the pandemic. And what you end up with is a lot uh, more ways to vote uh, than you did a year and a half ago, two years ago in Georgia. Um, you know, and, and so the, the, the charges are, well, by cutting off you know, the, the request deadline for asking for an absentee ballot at 11 days before the election rather than seven, literally, that's one of the claims. That is not just you know, depriving the right to vote, but that's a race-based deprivation <laughs> of the right to vote. Like, come on. Uh, and all of these woke corporate leaders who admit they haven't read the law or even talked to their general counsel about what's in the law, but feel the need to issue these statements. So, so yeah, there is muddying of waters by kind of those who, uh, you know, some of the, the Georgian legislatures who needed to, to, to pander to some of the, the, the populist crowd. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, the law that we have, and that's being litigated over, uh, is... 10 years ago, nobody would have batted an eyelash at it. In yeah. fact, it would have been, oh my gosh, such an expansion of the ability to vote. Right. I mean, to me, it's, it's we expanded voting, access to voting wildly because of the pandemic, which I think was utterly defensible because 
it was a pandemic. And then afterwards, we tightened it up, but not tightened it up to the point where it was before the pandemic. And people are saying, well, this is a net loss. And it's, it's not. It's actually a net gain. You know, voting right. The pandemic permanently expanded voting rights in much of America. I don't know about everywhere. We don't know what's going to happen in Arizona, yada, yada, yada. But it seems to me that that's certainly applicable to places like Pennsylvania and, and Georgia. That's absolutely correct. Okay, so um, I had a study for for Cato, a short a short piece on uh, pandemic uh, uh, voting policy. Um, you can put that in your show notes. But it's kind of looked at a lot of these different types of laws, and I think we published it last August. So we didn't have you know it was uh, without uh, you know knowing exactly what would happen in the election. But I think the lessons to be learned from the pandemic uh, are all there. Um. Okay. So. As I gather it, David French's favorite case um, is the F-bombing cheerleader. Uh, can you explain? And I think people know the general outlines, but you know what are the key facts or fact pattern or yada, yada, yada that people need to know? Because I, I have questions. Is this a family podcast or am I allowed to swear on it? I would rather you just use the F word or, okay. or that kind okay. of thing. Okay. I get complaints uh, but, from but nice I reserve, moms who listen I, in their car I with kids. I, I, in a sense of, of decorum and to, out of respect of your property rights, I, I will, of course, respect that, although I reserve the constitutional right to do so, shall, yeah. I, shall I wish to. Um, uh, yeah, so this is the Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, and BL stands for Brandy Levy. It's, it's initialed in the court case because she was a minor when the case started now. She's, she's no longer, and it's been widely reported. So she had a bad day of cheerleading uh, practice or tryouts, didn't make the varsity, stayed on the JV, and was upset, made a Snapchat, which I guess all the kids are doing these days, or maybe not all the kids. Maybe the kids have a, a, an even later model of app that they're all into. But, but anyway, it's supposed to be temporary, do these snaps. And, and she said, F cheer and F school and F this and F that. And um, uh, somebody pointed out, pointed that snap out, you know, because nothing is uh, is a temporary on the internet. Um, uh, pointed this out to one of her coaches who told the school authorities who got her suspended uh, from the cheerleading team for a year. She launched a lawsuit. And this was the biggest student speech case in about 50 years mm -hmm. since the case of uh, Tinker versus Des Moines School District with uh, uh, teenagers who wore black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. And at that point, the court ruled that uh, uh, students don't lose their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gates and basically set out a standard that the school still has regulatory authority to uh, police the classroom, to maintain order and things like this. But in that case, like just the passive wearing of black armbands doesn't disrupt anything. So that's sort of been the standard. Well, here the case is, um, you know, her Snapchat uh, uh, was not on school property. It was not during a cheerleading contest. It was completely on her own time, in her own place, you know, in, in the internet. Is it really the case, the question went, that school authorities, um, their power extends to basically anything that students do, uh, or at least anything online that the students do, which pretty much these days is the same thing. Uh, and the court resoundingly by an eight to one mark with Thomas being the only dissenter said, uh, no, schools generally can't do that. I mean, they, they, they hemmed and hawed. It wasn't a clear uh, delineation of the rule, but uh, unless there is substantial disruption uh, in, in all sorts of various ways, but just kind of having this kind of uh, exhortation uh, on your own time, on your own property and, and all that, uh, that is uh, beyond the, uh, the scope of uh, state regulatory power. Okay. So 
from what I've read about the actual facts of this case, I don't think they should have suspended her. I think there should have been some more generosity of spirit and all that. So I'm on her side to that extent. That said, I really don't find it particularly wildly unreasonable. And maybe this will lead to your school board issues and whatnot in the potpourri critical rate, critical potpourri section. Uh, uh, the, I don't find it inherently unreasonable that if a school says, Hey, look, when you are a cheerleader, you are an ambassador for our school and our community. And we expect you to behave to certain minimal standards. And, um, certainly I would be within my rights as a, as one of the co-founders of the dispatch. If one of our reporters was going around saying F the dispatch, this F the dispatch that, you know, um, to say, Hey, look, you're a private entity. I'm sorry. I know we're a private entity. I know that. I know that. And, um, but I look my, my, I think my point still stands is that if, that it does not seem to me that it is inherently unreasonable to say that even public schools can have honor codes or that subunits of the school, which are, you know, certain activities are privileges, not rights. You don't have a right to be on the cheerleading squad. Um, that uh, if you're, if, if you're student body president, that there are just certain things. If you run the, I don't know if public schools have honor boards, you know, like some colleges do, but if you have a position of authority and it's explained to you in advance that that's, it comes with certain expectations of decorum and behavior uh, that don't apply to other students in the, as a generic matter, it does not seem to violate any special principle on my part to say there are consequences if you don't live up to these standards. What, why am I wrong about that? The court says it's because what she did wasn't extreme enough. Like if she was all over national TV throwing shade on her cheerleading squad, that might be different. Here, she wasn't even intending for the coaches to hear this or intending for, you know, she it was among friends, basically. And in the digital world, it's it's hard because obviously in the uh, in the pre one of the kids world, snitched to her mother, who was the cheerleading you, coach. That's right. That's right. Um, in the pre-digital world, um, if she would have said this, um, you know, nobody would have found out, nobody would have been the wiser. So is the fact that the mother who was one of the assistant coaches of the cheerleading squad that she found out about it, that, that matters all of a sudden, or that the, uh, the school's regulatory authority is greater because this teenager can Snapchat rather than gossiping, you know, uh, directly to her friends by phone or something like that. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough case. And that's, I think why this, why the, why the court didn't completely slam the door, uh, on regulations of, of, of this kind. But, um, this just, uh, sometimes it just doesn't pass the the smell test. Um, PJ O'Rourke joined my, PJ O'Rourke joined my brief in this case. And he said that he'd heard uh, similar rants, uh, at his kitchen table, which is why he was expert enough to, uh, opine on the, the, the weighty constitutional issues here. Well, look, I mean, dropping pj in this you know is kind of unfair but um let's put it this way i don't find the analogy to pj o'rourke's kitchen table all that compelling i don't find the analogy to pre-digital age conversations all that compelling it seems to me that snapchat in a visual way um is 
much more comparable to a bullhorn. And if she, and again, I'm, I'm on her side in this, but I'm just trying to illuminate the principle here. When the bullhorn, but, it's but much you like said, a, you said she shouldn't have been, you said she shouldn't have been suspended. Yeah, no, I, because I, and, and I think for the reasons that you're suggesting that you're saying that the court found that it didn't cross a line, but I, you know, I have to listen to my dear friend, David French, you know, v, you know, turn into a voluptuary of all things, first amendment sometimes. And I've never been like nearly as gung ho about the, the first amendment, which, you know, maybe, maybe we can talk about CRT and well, let me put it this way. There's a lot in the first amendment that I love. I've never been as gung ho about free speech free speech absolutism, you know, a right to assembly, all that, yay. And, and the right for free political speech, hugely important. But I'm more with Irving Crystal on the side of, like... Um, Opening up defamation laws? No, I'm, 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 I'm probably, I'm probably going to stick with, with you guys some on of that. that action at the Supreme Court as well. Thomas and Gorsuch both saying that New York Times versus Sullivan needs to be reconsidered. The standard... The, the very high and basically unreachable standard uh, someone has to reach to uh, uh, to for, for a public figure to to sue for for defamation. Everyone's a public figure these days. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not. I, I need more evidence on that one. Um, but like the idea that some local school district can't have certain no modes of decorum, and you know, and and the reason why I say a bullhorn is more like is is a better metaphor or analogy. Is that a bullhorn is temporary, just like Snapchat, right? The video, the picture goes out and it disappears within a certain amount of time. Well, the sound waves from the bullhorn disappear even quicker, um, but it still has an impact. It still reaches a lot of people. And um, well, the court said that you know they're not they're not defining the scope of the time, place, and manner restrictions that schools can impose. And just like you know, in the non-school kind of normal context, even if political core speech is uh, political speech is core to the First Amendment. Uh, my town can still say I can't uh, go in the in the thoroughfare here at three in the morning and broadcast my political views uh, through a bullhorn because that disturbs people in various ways, not because of they're restricting my speech. Um, uh, similarly, the, the school can have various, I guess, honor or, or, or whatever rules, but um, uh, and then it's a question of how they would find out about it. And then someone who like just gossips to a few friends would have to be punished in the same way that someone that puts it on Snapchat, I suppose just a matter of, of, of finding out. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether a, a bright line can be drawn here, but I'm, I'm very wary in this context. This isn't like kind of the broader First Amendment, anything the state does context, but in terms of the, the, the school, I don't want to extend its power very much beyond the schoolhouse gates, because at that point, there are other authorities. Uh, there are parents to the mm -hmm. extent that the school gets powers because it's, it's in local parentis standing in the place of parents that that obviously dissolves when when they're not at the school or involved in a school uh, activity. So there are hard cases at the margin, which is why the court, I guess, didn't draw a, a, a strict hard and fast rule. All right. Since we're talking about education policy at this point, we might as well move back to the fact that you are running for the school board in in Fairfax, right? No, um, Falls Church City. Falls Church. Sorry, and I this apologize. is key. I don't think I'd be doing this in either Fairfax or Arlington or Alexandria, Montgomery County, Maryland, all these much larger neighbors of ours in, in this uh, uh, D.C. metropolitan region. This is a very small town, about 20,000 people, uh, 2,500 students in the public school system. We have five schools, including one preschool, so a very small operation. Um, this past year, the school, while the schools were closed, uh, the school board uh, first paid a consultant to survey the town about whether 
Thomas Jefferson Elementary and George Mason High should be renamed because, of course, our founders had slaves. Uh, the survey came back three to one against renaming. So, of course, the school board voted unanimously to rename while the <laughs> schools were closed. The schools didn't reopen for kind of hybrid until February and full time until April. Um, both of these, both the pandemic and the, rena- the renaming and the reopening caused great consternations among parents, among townsfolks uh, in a very blue jurisdiction. This is a place that went 80 percent for Biden, after all. And yet huge discontent, discontent with the school board, discontent with the superintendent, discontent for the, with the school board for just being overly deferential to the superintendent. Um, and, you know, various dissident groups uh, sprung up. Uh, I, I somehow became a member of a Facebook group of one of these, uh, you know, reopening schools groups, what have you. Uh, and uh, there were two vacancies that came about when someone you know, resigns or, or moves away from the district from the school board, the school board gets to appoint uh, their replacement. So I threw my hat in the ring for a couple of those and apparently didn't get picked, of course, because I wasn't going to go with the uh, go along to get along establishment crowd, but uh, got the attention of some local movers and shakers and eventually decided to just throw my hat into the ring for the actual race. So I am on the ballot. And it's wide open. There are eight candidates for four slots on a seven-member board. So there's staggered slots. There's three incumbents who aren't up until two years from now. But four slots are up. Eight of us are running, none of whom are incumbents, which tells you how popular the current school board is. There's some awkwardness because my next-door neighbor is one of the incumbent school board members who's not running for, for re-election. But, but anyway, I'm, I'm running on the, uh, you know, based on this fact pattern that, I, that I've just told you, I'm running on the controversial platform of transparency, accountability, responsiveness, and independent thought. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been an education, as it were. It's been very interesting. I've, I'm getting good, uh, good fundraising support, good voter kind of uh, recognition. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's taking up more time, even in this small jurisdiction than I thought it would, but it's been uh, an interesting addition to my life. All right. Well, just, just for the record, this podcast does not endorse politicians, but uh, let me just say that we'll put in the show notes, how you can reach out to your thriving campaign. And, um, it's a nonpartisan race, I should say. And, uh, you can go to Shapiro for false church for false church.com. Okay. And so will have the schools actually been renamed or is it just as of July one, they are, they are now Meridian high and Oak street elementary. They could not risk naming it after a person because who knows what people are going to be canceled for any given year. And will you push to re re to restore the status quo anti names? Well, I have to get elected first, Jonah. I understand. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the, the mix of the new board will be. Uh, we'll see how upset the uh, constituents still are uh, about that. Uh, I guess the money's been spent. So there's a bit of a starry decisive effect in that regard. But it begins, um, it begins. You're <laughs> I mean, like, it's no, it's funny because, like, Rich Lowry, I don't know he, how many Falls Church voters are uh, listening to this podcast, but just let me say that on the question of re renaming, I agree with you. <laughs> so, when Rich Lowry had that weird flirtation with running for mayor of New York, he like met a lady in his lobby who was like, Oh, I. I agree with you. You you're great. I'm really hoping that you do this. You should really run. The city needs you, blah, 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 blah. blah. But there's one thing. Um, where do you come down on rent control? Because if you're against rent control, there's no way I can vote for you. And, and Rich was like, 
well, we, you know, it's a complicated issue. We got to look at it. <laughs> this kind of thing. And Rich always cited it as like how immediately the second you start running for office, there's this corrupting effect where you don't want to piss off would be supporters, even for your entirely symbolic, not yet actual you know, campaign. But all right, let's say that let's say that the um the Virginia legislature, while you were on the uh board of ed, uh passed a critical race theory ban, a ban on teaching critical race theory in K through twelve schools. Uh uh what would be your position on it? Would you favor that? Would you be against it? And why? I would be glad that they took that decision out of my hands <laughs> uh, and I would enforce it to the full letter of the law um, in a way that doesn't violate the constitution. Um, I'm, I'm okay, as a Cato scholar. Of, if I asked you about this, what, where do you come down on this? Cause I, if we're going to do this I, as a politician, it's just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I am wary of anti CRT legislation in part because nobody, whether you're a proponent or an opponent of CRT, nobody can agree on what it actually means. And the legislation around the country has been worded in so many different ways that it's, that it's unclear, uh, what it means, what it can mean. Uh, look, uh, CRT uh, itself, uh, if you're talking about racial essentiality, if you're talking about uh, treating people, you know, through racial or gender or other intersectional lenses, if you're talking about oppressor and oppressed all the time, and how um, you know everyone has to shed their privilege and 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 talk about their you know have Maoist style struggle sessions and things like this, I'm against that. Um, if you're talking about learning our full history, warts and all, sure, I'm for that. If you know we need to put more of the the Tulsa massacre into our curriculum, sure. If we need to learn more about uh, exactly how Jim Crow operated and who was for it and who was against it, sure, let, let let's do some of that. Um, so it really depends what you mean. Um, very hard to craft anti-CRT legislation that either passes passes constitutional muster or um, doesn't sweep in uh, stuff that most people who are uh, proponents of this legislation would want to be taught. Um, so if you define CRT in, in, in a way or you know in this legislation, you say you can't do things that make people feel uncomfortable in a, in a racial way or something like that. Well, how is that not either redundant of existing civil rights laws or sweeping in, I don't know, um, teachings about communism or teaches about teachings about uh, uh, the KKK or, or the Nazis or, or, or something like that. So it's, um, you know, I'm a simple constitutional lawyer, not, not speaking as a politician, but just speaking as, you know, my own, you know, voluble self, self as a simple constitutional lawyer. It's, um, you know, I, I, I support the idea of equal opportunity rather than this newfangled equity where you cut everyone down, Harrison Bergeron style, so everyone's equally poor and equally dumb. Um, but how do you craft that legislation in a way that doesn't trample on, on other, uh, American values? Um, I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that it's, it's difficult at the same time. It, it, again, it, it's sort of like the cheerleader thing. It bothers me less if this is going on at the state level through state legislatures. Um, and I agree entirely. It is such a pain to listen to people argue uh, and it's like it's sometimes it's like listening people argue saying two plus two equals five and the, the other side saying you're an idiot two plus two equals six 
It's like both sides in the the loudest voices in this are often just beclowning themselves on both sides. And this this notion that but for the introduction of critical race theory in 2021, students in America have never been taught about racism and race and slavery and Jim Crow is such hot nonsense. And I think that's one of the things that's sparking the backlash is that people, parents have put up with so much sort of woke indoctrination stuff for so long and to be told that none of it counts in their to their credit <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're still racists and they have to do the, they have to take it to 11 creates a kind of uh, of a backlash but absolutely and I, and I I support those parents in neighboring Fairfax and Loudon and Arlington that are pushing back on the racialization of math and things like just absurd things yeah. like that um, and I agree that states do have a jurisdiction over curriculum. And so maybe they should just legislate curriculum by saying, this is the sorts of things we want taught rather than trying to play lawyer games with what exactly CRT is and how you can't teach this or that, but you can't, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I, and know. I think, I think the, the crucial distinction on this is that it's sort of like, I firmly believe that we should have that in schools when age appropriate and in the right class, you know, social studies, history, whatever, in ninth, 10th grade, whatever, you know, we could figure that out. Should be taught about Marxism or, or Islam or Christianity or, you know, all of these things. And, um, not, and I'm not doing a moral equivalence between these things. I'm just saying that there are all sorts of ideas and worldviews and ideologies that kids should be aware of. They should know what they're about. They should know their historical role. Racism is obviously one of them, but there is a difference between teaching people what these things are and what the historical role was and indoctrinating them. You know, it's the difference between teaching about what Muslims believe, which I think is an important thing to do in a polyglot, you know, in a diverse society, um, um, just as it's important to teach kids what Christians believe and what Jews believe and what atheists believe and all that kind of stuff. And it's another thing to, to teach that Islam is right. And I think what a lot of people who object to the critical race theory stuff is, are saying, and it's sometimes in a, in a haphazard way, is that they don't mind teaching about the existence of slavery and racism and, and the legacies of Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff. What they don't want is kids being indoctrinated into the core suppositions of critical race theory, which is a, just a very different thing. I agree with all that. Um, and you'll put a stop to it in, if, if elected. I'll uh, appoint a blue ribbon commission to study the matter and, you know, make sure that, uh, no, uh, it's look, uh, I had a wall street journal op-ed this past weekend. Uh, you know, I'm probably one of the few people to launch a, uh, local school board campaign with a national op-ed, but, uh, uh, we don't need a revolution falls church. This is not a failing school district. We don't have failing schools. We have, uh, you know, it's one of the best public school districts in the country. So, uh, my radical position is that we don't need radical change. Just mm -hmm. keep up with the academic rigor, make sure everyone has uh, equal access to our great opportunities that we have here. And that's it. And that's it. And and uh, all of these newfangled uh, ideas coming down the pike, you know, try out your educational theories uh, elsewhere, because if it, if it ain't broke, uh, don't fix it. Um. We have and be more responsive for God's sake. This is the thing. It's it's you know I'm, my my oldest is starting kindergarten 
next month, gosh, it's July now. So the end of August is when schools start. When I was growing up, we always started school the day after Labor Day, but yeah. I guess the harvest season here is different or something. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so my oldest is starting kindergarten. I'm about to have skin in the game. This is why I started following this stuff. And um, gosh, just be responsive to parents. What, what I, the, the horror stories I've, I've, I've heard from voters, from my, my would-be constituents about <laughs> like just trying to get uh, a response, just basic informational response, not some sort of gotcha games or something. Is, it's, been, uh, it's been frustrating. I'm sure. I mean, the, 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 this sort of guild mentality that has taken over so much of, 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 of those kinds of bureaucracies and, and progressive mechanisms of government is is just infuriating and uh, and um the there's a kind of weird aristocratic aloofness that comes you know i mean i just find it amazing that a school board when a survey comes back two to one opposing the name changes says okay unanimously let's vote to change the names i mean that's that's not exactly um yeah one guy said trump made me do it you know that's not on the ballot. If if they if anyone tries to nationalize this election this fall and be like, you know, you can read, you can go to my Cato website and read all my opinions about a whole host of different things. But let's talk about math. Let's talk about access. Let's talk about you know excellence and and things like that. And we'll you know hopefully that holds up because this is a, again this uh, I, as I said, eighty percent of the town voted for Biden, and yet the survey about the renaming was as it was, and the upset over the reopening was as it was. So this is not a uh, you know, national partisan or ideological fight. Yeah. Yeah. And you can read more about that at Shapiro for falls church.com. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Ilya, it was delightful to have you back on. I got your jacket measurements. Really appreciate it. 42 and, regular. Um, and, uh, we I will have two, you on. I prefer two button. Understood. N- Understood. None of this like Italian high, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. And, uh, we will have you on before the end of the next court term. I promise. And, uh, and, and thanks for doing this. My pleasure. All right. So Tribune of the people, Ilya Shapiro has left the studio. Um, I hope this was, uh, as edifying for, for you as it was for me. It's always good to have Ilya back on, despite the fact that he waves the bloody toga at his followers on Twitter to demand, uh, more Shapiro on this, uh, podcast and so i'm constantly hearing from people who have a fever and the only cure for the fever is more shapiro um but it's always good to have him on and and while i uh again will not and i do not endorse candidates i do endorse Ilya shapiro and i do think he would be a fine steward of the best traditions of democracy and of educational excellence um in any path that he pursues so with that, uh, thanks for listening. I had a great time in Nantucket. I really, uh, I sharpened my limerick skills and, um, uh, and I'm glad to be home and, um, I'm glad to get back on a more normal schedule. So I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. 
refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.